Okay, hello and welcome back to the control and the variable. Yes, we know it's been a long time. It's not been due to laziness. It's been, you know, coronavirus. Our, we have our theses, theses to write. Um, and so, yeah, we've just been really busy. So we've been unable to record, but no worries, our five listeners. We are back and hopefully we are back for a long time. <laughs> How are you, Sarah? I am doing good. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to follow the same pattern that we always do. We're going to start off with papers. Um, I haven't done a paper this week because over quarantine, I've been doing a lot of reading. Yes, one could uh, pose the question of, well, if you had time to read, you had time to do the podcast. To which I kind of agree to that, but I was listening. Uh, I was reading a book called *Superior: The Return of Race Science* by Angela Saini. So at the beginning of lockdown, I joined an online seminar with Angela Saini, and that was hosted by the psychology department at Royal Holloway. Um, and I saw the email; uh, it, it got sent to everyone, and um, I don't really know anything about the author or her books. Um, or anything like that so, but I joined because um, a mutual friend of ours Sarah Diane um, she mentioned something on the master's group chat um, that this would be like a good thing to attend um, and join so um, a message to all event organizers in the Surrey area if you want people to think that your event is cool and relevant probably get Diane to tell everybody on a group chat because otherwise I don't think I would have joined during the talk, um, Angela spoke about the research that she did concerning race-based science and she also spoke about the racism within the science community. So overall, I knew kind of, I had an idea of what her book would be about, um, but I didn't really know exactly what to expect. Um, so anyway, I bought the book, it came, uh, let's talk about it a bit. It was a quick read for me actually, it's only 300 pages. Um, so it took me about two days to read. And the book begins with a trip to the British Museum. Anybody else triggered? Anyone? Uh, certainly I was. <laughs> um, and Angela, <laughs> Angela talks us through some pieces and artefacts. Um, she mentions the British Empire and uh, the collection, I mean cough cough, thievery, uh, within the museum. Um, and then she talks about race. Um, and question to the audience, listeners, Sarah, what are the similarities by percentage uh, of genetics between each race? Are you aware? Oh gosh, it's going to be really high. It's going to be like 99% surely. Okay, I'll rephrase the question then. What percentage difference do you think there is between each oh. race? 0.5%? Okay, if you even considered a percentage higher than 0.1%, go and take a look in the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, genetically, there's nothing different about um, about each race. It couldn't be, like, statistically no, significant. No, I don't think anything statistically yeah. significant, because there's so much variance between one race. In general, yeah. obviously, because races aren't the, races aren't a genetic thing. Um, is, I think, the main point to make there. Um, so either way, the book goes on to highlight the vast range of research that has taken place with the aim of distinguishing the different races uh, through genetics. So, for example, Sarah, were you aware that the standard IQ test was developed with this aim? 
Really? Yeah, so it generated um, to try and distinguish the difference between the intelligence of black people and white people back in the day. Wow. I know, I genuinely felt so ignorant reading this book because I had no previous knowledge about a lot of these things that were discussed. Um, Were you aware of something called human zoos? Human zoos? Yeah, human zoos. I mean... I'm imagining something very literal where it's just no, people in... And it is, it is. It's something completely <laughs> literal. So people were taken from Africa um, and I think maybe other parts of the world as well. But um, yeah, and then they were taken around Europe to show to the Caucasian folk um, how other people look in other bits of the world. But they weren't treated like other humans. They were almost saying, look at this animal that I found. Yeah. In my colonising escapades. So, yeah, slaves were taken on tours of Europe to show off their figures and darker skin shades. Um, And other points I want to bring, actually, is the fact that Caucasian, the term Caucasian, used to be um, a term to describe people from Western Europe all the way to North India. So, in case I haven't had one already, now's the time for an identity crisis, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, obviously I'm just saying that as a joke. That's yeah. But no, that was a genuine definition of the word Caucasian. Um Abraham Lincoln, whilst he emancipated the slaves, apparently or were himself, uh thought that black people were inherently inferior to white people. So whilst we think that this man saved the black people of America, one could argue he didn't. Yeah, it's one of those things where he was progressive at the time, but looking at it now it's really not. Yeah, was it <laughs> good enough? Mm. I guess it's baby steps yeah. towards things like that. We'll get there. Yeah, there's the term of self-serving science, um, with the fact that they were doing a lot of the research on genetics and trying to find a difference between white people and black people, um, in the hope to find some sort of breakthrough that would justify their lack of decent behaviour towards fellow humans. So it kind of shows that people back in the day they knew slavery was wrong. They just try to justify it through science and this idea that black people are inferior and therefore deserve to be slaves, I suppose. Um, Yet a black gene or a white gene or whatever gene to um, indicate such inferiority or superiority is yet to be found slash won't ever be. Um, The origins of race are also discussed and how we as humans We haven't evolved from one race to another. So you know like how people say, oh yeah, we were all black people once upon a time and then we evolved into, you know, white people, other colours, whatever. Or maybe I've just had that, I'm not sure. Um, But that's utter rubbish. Um, We merely have different levels of melanin based on whether we live in the shade or not, really. Um, Eugenics is also mentioned in this book. So it didn't used to have quite the stigma that it does nowadays, because obviously we say eugenics, we think Nazis. Um, But a lot of eugenics work was being carried out in the UK before the um, war. And um, post-war, a lot of uh, research teams just decided to change their area of interest, um, you know, because of the war. So I guess maybe they learn, I'm not sure. One could argue that some people didn't learn after the Nazis and actually agreed with them. Um, because there is still currently research being carried out and funded, I might add. Do you know how hard it is to get funding? To- 
yeah, it's being funded probably by some rich white man. And um, yeah, research is still being carried out and published. And um, I think it was mentioned, I think this year, something was published about a link between poverty and race. And they were like, oh yeah, black people are more likely to be poor. But it was a science journal. I don't, I don't really understand. But the, basically what they were saying is that like, it's a black problem because of genetics, not because of... Because of the system and yeah. how it's been. So apparently you can Please. still publish rubbish like that. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> they. Uh, it's also mentioned in the book The Cheddar Man. Do you remember The Cheddar Man? I've never heard of The Cheddar Man. Okay, well, apparently it's British like history or something. Um, they found the remnants of a... I don't want to say it was a human, but it was like a maybe one of the first humans or human-like thing uh, in England, Cheddar Gorge. That's what it's called. Oh, Cheddar. okay. Yeah. And um, everyone expected him to be like... Okay, so in our heads, when we say English man, we both thought of a white man, right? Well, yeah. I didn't think of a white man, but like generally you would think of a white man. Um, so that was basically the whole country. And then they did some genetic testings uh, and had a look at his DNA and they found out that Cheddar Man was black. So <laughs> um, it was quite <laughs> funny that racists who are like, England is white and things like that, the first human, the first man, let's not say human because I'm not entirely sure. It was a while ago since I read this book. Um, the first man <laughs> in uh, England was black. I think that's, I laugh. Um, then there's also the whole idea about Neanderthals. You know how like people say, Oh, you're such a Neanderthal because someone's like a little bit stupid, a little bit thick. Yeah. And they said, oh, I don't say it. Some people say it. And um, it was this idea that before we thought that Neanderthals were black and therefore there was this link between a lack of intelligence and being black. Um, I'm not going to say that was the only reason, but it certainly added to this whole idea. And then with all the ancestry testing and things like that, um, white people are more likely to have Neanderthal genes, right? And okay. So, and so um, that's a recent revelation kind of thing. Um, and apparently the attitudes towards being a, a Neanderthal um, have changed. Um, so people <laughs> will consider Neanderthals to be um, resourceful and... Uh, you know, strong and all these like positive words now that we know that white people have uh, stronger ties with the Neanderthals than black people. I find that quite funny. I just think it's, it's like stupid things. But anyway, it poses this whole idea of, you know, with the ancestry tests, how we're all doing, well, not we, um, but you know, you spit in a tube, you send it off and then people are like, oh, you are 1%. Iberian, 2% Irish, um, I would be so scared to find British blood in mine, British genes, in my, it wouldn't have got there on good terms, so that would be scary. All these things are making us distinguish between race more, so yeah, the, I, I don't know, I think from a, um, from like a personal point of view, I, don't, I haven't read any studies about this, but I think the more you talk about race, 
and linking it to genes, the more people are going to subconsciously agree with a lot of eugenic kind of theories in the idea. Yeah. You know, there's that whole thing of, you know, if like, um, let's say one of David Beckham's kids becomes a footballer, right? You would say, oh, yeah, yeah of course, it's in their blood, right? Like, that's a yeah. common thing that you would hear. Um, but it spreads this false idea about genetics and intelligence or intelligence or like genetics and skill, which yeah, isn't, it's not a thing. And apparently there's something called like regression to the mean, where if you have smart parents, you'll be a little less smart. And then if you're not very smart, your children might be smarter with the idea that there's always some sort of regression to the mean of like average intelligence. Yeah. So proof is the genetic thing. I really it's sort of um, it's sort of similar to when I talked about anorexia in one of the previous episodes. Oh yeah. Where if you say you know there's a genetic element, people will just sort of be like, well, what's the point in even trying to overcome this eating disorder if it's genetic and there's nothing I can do about it? So it is like very negative to only associate something to being purely down to genetics yeah rather than any other factors so that's quite similar in that respect yeah that's really true either way i highly recommend anybody who is interested in books to to read this book um we'll put a description we'll put uh, some information in the description on where you can buy your own one Yeah, I would definitely need to read that. Um, when you said it was a quick book for you and you said how many pages <laughs> it was, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> because I bought a book during lockdown and I think I'm on page 20 <laughs> and it's like a 300-page book. <laughs> so, yeah, I am I am not a fast reader. That's what I've learned. <laughs> But it's actually um, a similar book about race. It's called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Oh, that book, yeah. So, yeah, I need to read more of it. But it did actually talk about um, this study that was conducted about interracial couples Mm. and how, I, I can't remember when the study was done, maybe in the 60s or like even earlier, but they just literally made up fake results and put it into this paper saying like, interracial couples are more likely to get um sexually transmitted diseases and things like that um so it just shows how racism was so rife in scientific research back then and still now Mm. I guess but that was just one thing that they talked about and I thought oh okay (laughs) I think if interracial mixing was a bad thing like if race was a real thing then interracial mixing and children who are biracial or mixed heritage there would be a higher chance of like mal what are they called what's it called uh, malformation i don't know yeah malformities that's the word i was like okay <laughs> but the fact that there aren't proves that proves that um there is no harm in races mixing because races are the same humans are humans as long as it's humans yeah. and humans it's a good time 
um, and consensual, of course. And it also promotes more genetic diversity, so they're yeah. likely to actually be healthier, Precisely. probably. Cool. Thanks for the book that I need to read. Yes. That's the next one. <laughs> I'll probably finish it in about five years. Yeah, so I'm not lending you mine because I want it back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, moving on to the paper that I found. Mm -hmm. So this paper was is quite an odd paper. It was written during the H1N1 outbreak in 2009. I don't think I've talked about this one yet. Um, no, I don't think you have. Okay. Because I, I made it like a list of papers a long oh, time ago. So I wasn't sure which ones were done. Okay, so this paper looked at the use of iodine. So it's long been used as an antiseptic. Um, when you look, look back in old movies, they would always clean a wound with iodine. They still do when they do surgeries um, before they cut someone open. And it's used because it kills bacteria, fungus, and even viruses such as flu. So I thought it was quite interesting. My mum actually sent me the paper <laughs> during the start of the coronavirus outbreak because she was like, why aren't we using iodine everywhere? <laughs> yeah. So I looked into it. And now I'm like, yeah, why aren't we using iodine everywhere? <laughs> Good question. And there have been studies that show that no organisms develop resistance to repeated iodine exposure um, it's not really toxic even at high concentrations it kills bacteria and fungus and viruses at low concentrations so overall it's a really good sort of antiseptic and I think underrated as well probably <laughs> yeah also you know like it is safe because people who have like thyroid problems don't they have treatments where they have like um iodine yeah so they need to have iodine in order to sort of be healthy i guess mm -hmm. they definitely we all need iodine in some levels and then the rest of the iodine if it doesn't go to your um thyroid to create the thyroid hormones it's actually secreted into the mucus of our noses, our lungs, our stomachs, and it helps fight infections there. Oh, wow. I never knew that. That's so cool. Yeah, I didn't know that either, to be fair, until I read this. And then, um, so it's been suggested that if iodine is so good, and, you know, it's non-toxic, why don't we have face masks that, um, you know, sort of, got iodine in them some incorporated in them somehow oh, yeah. so that if a virus or something did end up in the mask it would die yeah awesome. and oh, then wow. yeah i don't know if anyone's done it but um, stain your skin because <laughs> iodine is yeah. like quite a, it's a stain as well so it would just be like the new fake tan you know go outside with iodine <laughs> <laughs> and then um there's been other suggestions to make face masks sort of more effective because obviously they're not 100% perfect, especially if you're using like a fabric one mm. or a surgical one for a long time. Um, other suggestions have been, for example, covering your mask in salt and then letting it dry 
And then when droplets land on your mask from a sneeze or a cough, it will dissolve and then crystallise again and this somehow kills any pathogens on it. Mm. Supposedly. Yeah. I mean, in theory, these make sense. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure there's a reason why they're not already created. Maybe because in case you're talking and then you lick your lips when you're wearing a mask and then you'll be like, ugh, that's salty. (laughs) Oh, yeah, maybe, yeah. (laughs) That's a good idea. I feel like the reasons why these aren't used are practical issues rather than, like, scientific issues. Definitely. (laughs) Or maybe we've just given away, like, the next million pound idea. Yeah, sorry, we should get rich. It's all right. Okay, you heard it here first, guys. If you start using salt in your face mask or using iodine, just generally, know that you heard it from us and that you should probably get us on some sort of sponsorship deal. We'll be on the adverts. Yeah, give us some mind. credit. <laughs> <laughs> At least sponsor the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by iodine-clad masks. <laughs> oh, like... <laughs> Why get a fake tan? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that that was the paper on iodine. So I think um, my mum always like sends me things like she's very into like herbal, you know, like traditional I guess mm. medicines like from nature and whatnot. So she sent me this, and I was like, oh, okay, I'll read it. <laughs> it was actually really interesting. Mm. I quite like. I'd say it's one of the most useful forwarded messages that we've received over quarantine, surely. Oh, yeah, sure. There's been some other really stupid ones being sent over. So, well done, Sarah's mum. Good job. God, that sounded really, um, what's the word, condescending. It didn't mean to come across condescending. (laughs) I've forgotten her name. Hypatia? I don't know how you say it. How do you say it? I pronounce it Hypatia. Okay. I assume that's how it's pronounced. I don't know. She's just been dead for so many years. She's not going to come and tell us off. No one's going to get offended. Yeah. <laughs> so the person we are talking about today is Hypatia of Alexandria. We're pretty sure that's how you pronounce it. But if we're not, please let us know. So Hypatia lived roughly between 350 to 415 AD in the Eastern Roman Empire, more specifically Alexandria in Egypt. And during the time that she was alive, it was very turbulent in Alexandria's history because there was a conflict between pagans, Christians and Jews. So, you know, what's new? (laughs) So in her time, she was actually considered a world-leading philosopher, astronomer, mathematician and advisor to the city's leaders. And the reason why we chose her is because it's quite impactful that she was the first sort of female mathematician whose life was reasonably reasonably well reported on. So in that sense, she is sort of a front runner. Yeah. For female... Women in science. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, she did a good job. So, um, although none of her original writings survived, 
she has this incredible legacy and it's in part to do with the students that she taught and how they remember her and how they sp- spoke so highly of her. So that's why today she's known as a bit of a legend, I guess. So yeah, she taught astronomy and philosophy at the Neoplatonic School, which is similar to a university nowadays. Um, so Neoplatoni- Neoplatonism is a fun word to say, <laughs> and it essentially is sort of a philosophical and religious system developed by followers of Plotinus, um, who is another great philosopher, I believe. Okay. And this is who Hypatia followed. Um, so she was the daughter of Theon, who was the head of um, the school. Uh, he also did maths, but apparently modern day uh, mathematicians say that his maths was fairly trivial and completely unoriginal. So that's a burn. No one really knows who her mother is. But yeah, she taught at the school. She was she was very well known for her philosophy. She was described as a person who made such attainments in literature and science as to far surpass all the philosophers of her own time. Oi, oi. So yeah, apparently none of the other philosophers of her time were noteworthy enough. Um, and so she's the only one that people really remember from that time. Um, and she was admired by both men and women. They liked, they liked the way how she spoke to whoever and wherever she went without fear or shyness. So no imposter syndrome for her. She didn't feel imposter syndrome, neither can we girls. Um, but she had a very gruesome death, um, <laughs> obviously. I feel like, who else had a really... Mary Curie's husband died horribly. I mean, she also died quite horribly too. Was stripped and killed with, um, a, with using broken pottery uh, by a mob where they also cut out her eyeballs, tore her body up and burned her remains. And uh, that was during Lent, a couple of hundred years ago. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yeah, I'll give up this, but I'll also kill Hypatia. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And that was very um, politically and religiously motivated. Yeah. Um, So a lot of Hypatia's work isn't really our kind of science. You touched on this um, already. But she was well known for writing a commentary on some other people's work. So she was, I, I don't know, I guess a critic of the time too. Um, so she wrote a book written on in the second century of mathematical and astronomical information. So like how the division problem for calculating the number of degrees swept by the sun in a single day's orbits the earth. Lol, I have no idea what that is talking about. It, it sounds very complicated for the time, like the level of yeah. maths that they were doing. I mean, when you think about it, you don't even have to go that many years ago to kind of think that people were living a little bit in the dark, like before the internet, what, what, you know, I think of that time. And you're like, how did you do this kind of maths without a, without a calculator? I'm very exactly. confused. And then this is like so many hundreds of thousands of years ago. And... Um, yeah, they literally just had like a a telescope and somehow they've calculated these incredible yeah. <laughs> things. Also her character um featured in did you do you watch The Good Place? I've heard of it, but I haven't watched it. 
Oh, well, Hypatia gets into the good place, if you wanted to know, so. Oh, nice. Clearly, <laughs> not many people did. <laughs> there is a film that's loosely based on her life, if anyone wants to watch it. It's okay. called Agora. Okay. In so, English? Um, it's probably not super accurate and very fictionalised, but, you know, if Hypatia you want to learn played more. by Angelina Jolie. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's all we have for Hypatia, who is a pretty cool person. And then we're moving on to our usually funny section, but we haven't been in the lab, so, well, we have, but we haven't. So, instead, I just have a few questions to ask you, Sarah. How has yeah. your break been? How has your break been away from the lab? Are you happy that you weren't in the lab? <laughs> has this helped <laughs> you figure out what you want to do after your master's? I mean, the break has definitely been helpful. And there's been opportunities that I wouldn't have got if it didn't happen. For example, now I have a job straight after I graduate at the hospital. Yay! Um, yay! <laughs> I know, I was pretty happy about that. Oh, that's so good. Um, so things like that, yeah, definitely wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for this. But then other times I just think, if it wasn't for all of this, we would have been finished by now. <laughs> Yeah, they're so We true. could have been free. <laughs> I know, I know. And chances of having a, a winter graduation is um, is impossible now, I don't think. Yeah, I remember when I wanted to do a master's, I was like, oh, it's only one more year. It won't be that long. <laughs> Fast forward two years and we finally get to graduate. <laughs> oh, it's oh, really sad, but it's okay. I mean, you've already bought your dress, haven't you? Yeah, I found a bargain and I was just like, I want that one. <laughs> I was reading a thing about this, about how when girls compliment other girls, they have to put themselves down. Like, you, just then, you were like, oh, I was like, oh you got, I got a dress. It, for a bargain. And it was just like, it was a bargain, I bought it out of the bin, kind of thing. <laughs> you had to say I mean, yes. I'm quite proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my bad. <laughs> I did insult no, myself. <laughs> you were like, I wasn't insulting myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay anyway back to that then research how has your research changed have you um did you use the break in order to reformulate your your thesis or yeah so I basically restarted from the beginning um when I went back after the lockdown still sort of on a similar path but I sort of had to simplify it more in order to get everything done in time mm -hmm. and I think it's been a good thing definitely because it feels like a fresh start and now when I go in I know what I've done because I made all the mistakes before lockdown <laughs> and I can just get on and do it <laughs> yeah that's really good um I agree so, yeah the break really helped me have a good think about what I've done and what needs to be doing Whereas I feel like when you're working just constantly, especially in the lab that I work in, you have to work kind of nine to five, five days a week. Um, and you're constantly just kind of going and going and going. And you don't really have a time to sit down, do a bit of reading, do a bit of thinking about what you've actually done and what it actually means. Um, so yeah, maybe I'll be taking breaks more often to do this kind of thing. <laughs> okay, how, um, what are your aims for the podcast now? Because now... You know, we're going to be together for a bit longer. 
um, until at least December, hopefully. Um, do you have any further aims for this podcast? I mean, I do enjoy just talking about science outside of my own project and just in generally learning more about science, which is great. So I hope to continue to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's also just a great place to talk about science because um, in my sort of bubble of people that I'm immediately around, I don't have many people that I can talk to about things in science that I think are really cool because they're like, what? Yeah. (laughs) Well, at least I ask you what. I get a lot of, Sonia, no one cares. Stop talking to us about this. Gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Um, At my PhD interview, um, I was asked, where do you see yourself in five years? Have I, have I spoken about this on the podcast? I'm not sure. But um, the lecturers who were interviewing me, um, they said, oh, do you see yourself on TV in five years, you know, having a documentary and being on this, that? And I laughed at them. I was like, what are you even talking about? Like, no, I've told you in my application that I want to do academia and things like that. But the more <laughs> that I've been reading and the more that I've been, what I've, I watch a lot of documentaries now. I'm really into them. And... Um, I mean, I'm not saying I want to be a documentarist or anything like that, but I certainly wouldn't mind going into some form of science accessibility kind of thing um, where science isn't considered something, well, some sort of project to encourage people from all backgrounds to um, develop an interest in science and health. And I think especially after coronavirus, people want to know more about how their bodies work and about research. I think also this whole rubbish uh, that I keep on seeing online about vaccines are going to kill everyone and things like that. I'm like, if you knew about just research and how research works and how, you know, science is, then surely we'd have less of this ignorance. Yeah, absolutely. I can really see you doing something like that, actually. I could see you as like a a science journalist with your own documentary (laughs) definitely (laughs) I'm not turning that down I think that sounds really fun um and I also I actually joined the school newspaper um you know the orbital oh yeah yes I'm a writer for them now which is nice so what's the funniest thing that's happened to you over quarantine all going back to the lab lab stories both yeah, I was trying to think something, and it's really hard, you know, when you think, like, oh, what happened? What's happened in the last five months? <laughs> so um, I did think of something, actually, that happened recently. It wasn't to me, but it was to someone in the lab while I was there. So he's a postdoc, and he was getting his cells out of the incubator. We were in the tissue culture room, and he's just you know, walking, walking to the microscope and he tripped with his cells in his hand. So um, he had two flasks and the first one was on top of the, they were on top of each other and the top one just went flying onto the floor. And I sort of just, you know, when you freeze and you don't say anything, you just wait and see what their reaction is. I was like, oh, how's he going to handle it? Because if it was me, I would 100% be, swearing and whatnot 
<laughs> I think I'd probably laugh and then the laugh would turn into crying. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a valid response as well. So um, he just sort of stopped for a second and he was like, well, that's not good. <laughs> um, and yeah, surely enough, when he picked up the flask and looked at it on the microscope, he was just like, yep, everything's dead now. Oh. It's all dead. That's sad. <laughs> at least he had a backup flask. So ah, you know. And there we go. That is why you back. You always up. have to. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> always have a backup. Mm. And actually, um, something happened to me a couple of weeks ago. So my cells got contaminated, unfortunately. Oh. Ah, but the interesting thing was it got contaminated with like a fungus. So um, I saw these little things floating in the media. Did and they look like boba? Like, they look like what? Sorry, like boba for like bubble tea. Did it look like um, that, like floating? Not like that. So oh. it looks like um, little fibers, like little hairs. Mm. And I thought, oh, it's just from the you know when you use a pipette, there's that little thing at the top that stops the liquid yes, going yes, into yes. the pipette. I just thought it was from that. And then um, I asked someone to double check it for me and they were like, yeah, this is infected. Oh, no. <laughs> and it was just so weird because nobody had, like, they were like, I don't know how you've done this. Like, how do you get a, a fungus contamination inside your cells? Like, <laughs> Oh, it was just quite the... feet, apparently. Oh, that's really weird. Yeah, we found something in the in the lab once. Someone left a flask going for, like, you know, on the shaker. They left it in an incubated yeah. shaker for so long that the, maybe it was, I think it was a fungus. It looked like, um, like boba, like ice, uh, bubble tea. <laughs> I'll, I'll put a picture yeah. on our Instagram. And it was honestly the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. I gagged so hard. Um, it sounds gross. Yeah, and they were green. It, ugh, ugh, it was horrible. <laughs> so, I mean, luckily I wasn't doing any experiments at that time. I was just growing myself. Mm. So um, I didn't lose out on too much. Oh, that's good. Really. In fact, it actually saved me. Um, so when I showed people my flask to get a second opinion, they were like, well, at least you don't have to come over bank holiday weekend and check on them. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, maybe it's a good thing. Who knows? <laughs> oh, it's so funny. Oh, did you enjoy your bank holiday then? <laughs> was it worth it? Yeah, it was good. It's very relaxing. <laughs> good, good. I'm very glad. Um, I, the, the only funny thing I could think of was we... Do you know Fareed in the lab next to, uh, next to mine? Is he tall? Yeah, yeah, very tall. As the call ended I thought of like the funniest pun that I thought was really funny and then at the end of lockdown I ran up to him and I was like we're all Fareed at last <laughs> <laughs> yeah he had the same kind of response of just like no Sonia no but I, <laughs> I waited all quarantine <laughs> for that to be over I set a reminder on my phone um of like the next time you're there and he's there you've got to tell him <laughs> That's so, so good. <laughs> so yeah, that's as exciting as life's getting at the moment. Um, 
shall we promise to do a bi-weekly bi-weekly means every other week right what does that mean twice a week i don't know but every other week sounds Fort- good weekly. fortnightly Fort weekly oh no fortnightly of course bloody hell there's a word for this <laughs> okay fortnightly um we will be recording the podcast so we hope you guys enjoyed this episode sorry for taking such a long break although we got no emails asking where we were so thanks guys um and uh we hope you have a lovely fortnight see you soon bye see you